Do you like notebooks? Do you use them? Of course you do. Well, maybe you're a digital person. I don't know. But look, it's a very exciting moment for me when I open a new Moleskine notebook. Yeah. M-O-L-E-S-K-I-N-E. -E. I haven't done it for ages because I've been using a very big notebook. So now I'm down to an A5 size notebook. And it's the 1st of January 2017. And I'm, I've decided what I'm going to do with it. Well, actually, I'm going to run my entire life out of the notebook. But one particular little challenge project I've set I've decided there are 31 days in January. I uh, write poetry, I read poetry, I... Um, what else do I do with poetry? I think... Uh, I think poetically, I suppose, in that I'm always trying to get rid of words, get rid of... find the exactly right one and stuff. So anyway, I decided there are 31 days in January, so I'm going to make 31 points about poetry. So the new challenge, then, that I'm undertaking to uh, every single day for 31 days make one particular point about poetry illustrated with perhaps a bit of poetry um, in a wave here on Anchor and I don't know what it's going to lead to you know it could lead nowhere it could lead to me proving to myself that I, I don't have 31 points that I can make about poetry I've only got 17 and I haven't got any more and I need to go and look up a book no, I'm going to do it straight off. 31 thoughts about poetry. And uh, please keep me company. I would love, I would love your company. There was a guy in England a long time ago who used to love walking across the, what's called the Lake District. There are low-lying mountains, nothing very, very high, but lots of them and lakes and beautiful views very wet place and he used to go walking across this this countryside there and i haven't seen the film about him his name is william wordsworth but his daughter's uh, sister's name is dorothy and uh, she used to write down uh, his uh, poems so one of his uh, first poem of his that i ever came across was uh, began the first line of it began I wandered lonely as a cloud. Some years later I found out somewhere, whether this is true or not, you'll have to make up your own mind, that the first draft was I wandered lonely as a cow. And the reason I'm mentioning this is that it, for a poet it really does matter whether it's wandering lonely as a cow or wandering lonely as a cloud. These things matter. Now, cloud has got one syllable and cow has got one syllable. Cloud is a longer word. It's got more stretch to it than cow. And there's a good chance that cloud will carry, will have more legs than a, than a, than a cow. That, that cloud will carry stuff. So it's more evocative to wander lonely as a cloud. So that's maybe why he began that way. 
You can be a great poet without ever rhyming. Yeah, you can write loads and loads of poems and never once have any of them rhyme and you can become known as the greatest poet that's ever existed. If you're bloody lucky. It's the same as saying, look, a golfer can go out on a golf course and shoot a subpar round without ever having a wedge in the bag or without ever having a putter or without ever playing the driver. In other words, poetry does not require rhyming. However, you'll never be any good as a poet unless you are able to rhyme and unless you're able to recognize a rhyme. You see, some rhymes are very easy to recognize. For example, the owl and the pussycat went to sea in a beautiful pea green. In a beautiful, the owl and the pussycat went to sea in a in a beautiful pea green boat. They took some mm, honey and plenty of money wrapped up in a five-pound note. Or roughly speaking, that's how the poem by Edward Lear goes. So how many rhymes did you spot there? And that is one of the great poems, greatest poems ever written in the English language, by the way. So you better be able to rhyme. Yeah. Yeah. But you can shoot a subpar round. Day three of the crazy poetry January challenge. How to make the effort to make 31 points about poetry. So here we are, January the 3rd. And you know, the thought I have this morning is there are many landscapes. Yeah, I'm looking out on a landscape here that I see horses, I see grass, I see frost, I see hoof marks. There are many landscapes. And there's one landscape that I hate more than any other, and it is a blank sheet of paper. A blank sheet of paper is a landscape, isn't it? For a poet, a blank sheet of paper is a landscape. And we'll come back to metaphor on another day, but the key point I want to make is that the wonderful thing about poetry is, and I feel that poetry is so much better than writing prose in this respect, is you don't have to fill the bloody page, right? You don't even have to fill the line. So the great thing about poetry is that you can start a poem with a single word and you can put the word anywhere you bloody well like on the page and you don't have to put the second word immediately after it. You could actually put a word on a line and nothing else on the same line. So you can give a word a position and say, well, you know, screw you, you can sit up there on top. Now I'm going to write something underneath you. I am going to undermine the single word that I put on top by some other words. So the blank sheet of paper that terrifies novelists doesn't have to terrify a poet.
welcome to day four of the crazy Poetry January Challenge, during which 31 points in about poetry are to be made by me, for what they're worth. Okay, look, I just want you to imagine the situation for a second. The wind is spitting across the trees and the rain has already fallen on the ground. It's a brutally dark night. And you're standing at the bus stop waiting for, for, for a lift into town. And a guy says to you, who you've never met before, he says to you, come here, I want you, come here. What's the difference between poetry and prose? And you look at him as if he's got, you know, more heads than, a, than any gargoyle you've ever seen. And you say to him, uh, you know, how important is it that I get this right? And he says, your life depends on it. And you say to him, oh, well, look, 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 prose is like, prose is like a whole crowd of dive, uh, bombers, uh, bombers that are advancing, about to release their payroll right on top of you. Yeah, and they do, they do. And they drop them. And, and half the words explode. They're that good. They're that powerful. And, 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 and on the other side, uh, poetry is like a different crowd of bombers coming from the other direction. And they, and they get in overhead and they release their payroll and every bloody one of them explodes. Every bloody one of them explodes. Every feckin' syllable of the lot of them explode. Is that the difference between poetry and prose? And he says, you're a feckin' lucky guy. You've just escaped with your life. Welcome to day five of the crazy poetry January challenge in which I set out to make 31 points about poetry. And, and I well remember sitting at a, a dinner table, a black tie do, sitting in between the wife of the CEO of the company and the uh, wife of the one of the operations directors of the company. And uh, I was kind of like the the kept man because it was it was uh, I was brought to the to the dinner as as uh, as the husband. So I really was talking to the wives while the uh, the business people were talking to each other. Um, and two both of the women, it turned out, were mad about poetry, totally mad about poetry. Um, and uh, I had an incident with one of them where she was clearly a wonderful teacher of poetry. Uh, or by her approach, she sounded as if she was. She was a, a school teacher of some sort. And, uh, and then I said to her, I said, well, by the way, do you write any poetry yourself? And the look on her face changed dramatically. She kind of went all quiet and sallow and, uh, and the blood drained out of her face. And she said, no. And she said no in a certain tone of voice. And it clearly turned out to be that she considered that she wasn't worthy to write poetry herself. She was a great appreciator of it, but she was not worthy. Poetry was up on a pedestal. It was the highest form of writing ever done by human beings, and she wasn't worthy for it. And that, I believe, to be one of the great problems with poetry. This is day 
six of the 31 day crazy poetry challenge in January 2016 and so it's time for point number six about poetry and you know like all of you I had to do poetry at school I didn't have any alternative it wasn't my choice to do it and um, I had to do exams in poetry to, to, in Ireland we have a thing called the Leaving Cert and that's the final exam you do when you're leaving high school. So in order to pass that exam I had to be able to answer questions uh, which involved analysing a poem and uh, saying what I thought the poet meant by it. But never, never in school did I ever uh, get encouraged or shown how I might say something about what the poem meant to me, what thoughts I had about the poem and what feelings I had and what associations and what it did in my imagination. So I never really learned at school and what I discovered afterwards is that a whole lot of people feel that in relation to poetry the first thing they have to do in relation to a poem is to understand it. And I want to tell you that that is a load of bollocks. I want to tell you that you should not try to understand a poem. The first thing you should do is you should try to just feel the poem. Let the poem work its magic on you. Leave understanding till much, much later. And, and you may never even understand the poem at all. Welcome to day seven of a challenge which I'm doing in January, which is to make 31 points about poetry. The, the challenge is called Crazy, uh, Crazy Poetry January Challenge. Um, the last time I saw Thomas Lynch, he was an undertaker in somewhere like Michigan or Milwaukee, some American state beginning with them on the East Coast. The, the um, uh, what was I going to say about Thomas Lynch? What I was going to say is that he's got the peculiar distinction of being an undertaker. Yeah, a, pr a proper, he has an undertaking business. And I spent a week with him once on a Arvon poetry writing uh, workshop. Lovely, lovely man. Um, but he told me something that's always stuck with me and that resonates with my own experience. He said, if I was sitting around waiting for inspiration to hit me, I'd write about two pieces a year. And I wouldn't be able to uh, to live because he lives by his writing and his his undertaking, I guess. So that's always resonated with me because I think that if you're even thinking of writing a poem and you wait until you feel you're inspired, you're missing massive opportunities. Poetry is a matter of writing. Poetry is a matter of practice and. And I think actually it's fair to say that inspiration gets in the way of writing poetry. So stop waiting to be inspired is my advice. 
Welcome to day eight of the Crazy Poetry Challenge. Now I've got some news for you. You are a storyteller. You love stories. You listen to stories all the time. And whenever you get together with people, you tell stories to each other. And I've got a story for you. Here's how the story goes. And it's spoken by a man. You see, here's a story. Here's a guy talking. Between my finger and my thumb, the squat pen rests, snug as a gun. Under my window, a clean, rasping sound when the spade sinks into gravelly ground. My father digging. So there's a little story, right? There's a little kind of pen picture of a guy watching with a pen in his hand and his father outside digging. And that's what poets do. They tell stories. They tell stories. They, they paint a picture. They hope that the picture they're going to paint, and they work hard at this, you know. They don't always get this. This doesn't come out of their head the very first second that they apply paper to pen. But they hope that the story will be fresh, that, that it'll be vivid and fresh, and they don't want to use expressions that you've heard a thousand times before, really. Every day in January, 31 days, I'm trying to make 31 points. Well, I am making 31 points about uh, poetry. And there's a blackbird on the grass outside which has just flown away. And there's a black cat here looking for attention. And every day I drive down the hill to take my daughter to school, quite a steep hill, and there's always a queue as you go down the hill. And some days that's what it's like. You just drive down the hill and you, and you do nothing. You're not trying to do anything except take your daughter to school. And then uh, one day you're going down the hill and you're stuck in the queue and you think, oh my goodness, this is what life is like. Life is one long queue, one car behind the other, and then at a certain point the queue dissipates, and you can drive on until you hit another queue, and you're stuck there for a while, you have to slow down, you have to rest, you have to have patience and all that, and then you, and, and, and I come back from the, the school run and this idea of life being a queue, is there. Now what is that? The queue was the catalyst, but the actual <sighs> impulse, the, the propulsion to write something, why did it come on a Tuesday rather than a Wednesday? And that's what poets call their muse. They were visited as they were driving down the hill behind a queue by a muse who said, now
Well, welcome to day 10 of the 31 days in January when I'm trying, when I'm struggling to make 31 points about poetry. Yes, today I feel I am struggling. And you could say that I have got pointers block. How am I going to make 31? And I've only got as far as 10. And I hear writer's block spoken about quite a bit all over the place, really, and sometimes written about. So I think it is a very uh, common experience. I don't think it's good to call it writer's block. I think it's better to call it research, so that when you're not actually doing writing, you're, you're, you're doing research. In other words, you go and you dunk yourself into ongoing life, work, fun, pastimes, whatever, swimming, climbing, anything you like, really. Mixing a lot with people, I'd say. I, I, I decided I'd address this topic of writer's block in a poem rather than in prose. And I wrote, I have writer's block, said the spider to the fly. I didn't even know you wrote. Aren't you going to ask me why? So that was the beginning of what turned out to be a rather long dialogue between two characters, a spider and a fly. <clears throat> and the point I want to make is that when you get yourself stuck in one form of writing, then it's quite handy to switch and put issues into the, into the mouths or other characters. And that can free up the mind and now it's wonderful to play you Jennifer E. Lynn's call-in or Jennifer E. Lynn's message to Bobby Koontz and, um, and she says some really lovely things about the poem as well Oh, good evening. Sorry, I didn't realise you were here. I'm in bed, and I thought I'll just um, I'll just say something. I wasn't sure if anybody, if I get to the end of a sentence, but I just thought I'd say something about the total eclipse of Donald Trump. Yes, I, I have been thinking about the total eclipse of the President of the United States and it's been sort of running around in my head that it was, uh, there was a tremendous opportunity to write um, something around the total eclipse of Donald Trump since the first solar eclipse to cross the United States for, from coast to coast in 99 years is an incredibly important uh, thing from the point of view of science and the total eclipse of Donald Trump uh, is in some way connected with his concept of science. Now I've been doing some research about this 
And I thought, first of all, I'd better try to understand something about the sun. So I, I went to read a magazine called Scientific America. Now, this is probably on the list of things to be criticised. Um, but we may get the... So what does it tell me here? You see, this is a question I didn't know even existed. Why does the sun's temperature increase as you move away from its surface? Usually things cool down as you move away from a hot object like a campfire or a steam radiator. But that's not what happens with the sun. The temperature of the sun in the center is about 5,500 degrees, give or take. Yeah, and then um, it gets hotter and hotter. So, some people set out to work on this problem. It's all about the sun's magnetic field. Yeah, that's the, 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 the reason why. So the sun has a magnetic field. But, unfortunately, the people who are doing research do not know how this magnetic field works because you get this bizarre high temperature of the corona. Corona is that stuff around the sun. Anyway, there are such things as magnetoacoustic waves. Yeah, this is a theory. That the, anyway, that the oscillations in the magnetic field, imagine a magnetic field and imagine it oscillating. That means kind of blowing, moving a bit, and that that heats up the corona. Anyway, don't worry about this, but we're hopefully going to get the answer. See, they watch eclipses very carefully and they study this corona to see how round it is. Anyway, during this August one it's possible that they, they may even get continuous coast-to-coast -coast observations with viewings from citizen scientists so, there's an awful lot going on. Citizen scientists, uh, people will be able to send images through a Google interface. Imagine all this. Wow. 94 years ago, Ralph C. Smedley was bothered. He was on the east coast of the United States, and men that he knew, including himself, weren't as good at public speaking as they needed to be. All pretty uh, influential, powerful people, or maybe even people who weren't so powerful. But the men weren't able to do public speaking without being afraid of it, without being nervous, and without, and they weren't able to do it very well. 
So he set up a little organization or a little group um, to help men to get better so that they'd be more successful in life. And he had a philosophy about it and he afterwards wrote that philosophy up. But they didn't in those days, as would have uh, would have been quite normal in those days. Uh, he didn't. They didn't have any women uh, involved in it. Uh, I don't know what Ralph uh, sees maybe. I don't know what the C stands for. But uh, one thing led to another. The um, group uh, was uh, another group was set up. Another group was set up. It spread all over. Well, it spread to the west coast of the United States, where the headquarters of Toastmasters is today. So, 94 years later, Toastmasters is uh, all over the world and uh, it, there's a high probability that there's a Toastmasters uh, local club uh, within 20 miles of where you are living. And in my case, uh, about uh, 15 minutes away and I'm driving there right now. The, Oh, by the way, in case this matters to you, and it does matter a lot to me, uh, Toastmasters did let women in in uh, 1973. So, and indeed, today it's not a, a male-dominated organization with a few women. Uh, my experience of it is that the uh, <laughs> they're very, very strong women. Um, and... Uh, uh, yeah, and talented women, especially in my local club in Blarney, in Cork. I, I'm going to a meeting of people from uh, Toastmasters here in Ireland. Well, actually, uh, more local than that, people of Toastmasters here in Cork. Now, there are loads of Toastmasters clubs or little local groups in Cork. Uh, but this is a, a meeting of people from different clubs because Cork has the great honor and responsibility of uh, hosting conference for what's called District 71, which is all Ireland and the whole of the UK with the exception of London, and I hope I've got that right, hosting the only conference that Division 71 will hold in 2018, and anyone who is going to or hoping to go to the World Speaking Championship uh, will have to be there. And this group, which has been meeting for quite some time, um, is charged with the responsibility of organizing everything. Now, I haven't been involved at all. It's called Safe Haven, by the way this uh, conference uh, there was a small well there is a small core group uh, four people I think uh, and this core group is meeting uh, is setting up and meeting a team a wider team uh, today for the first time and we're meeting in Blarney which is underneath Blarney Castle which is where the Blarney Stone is, and which is one of the biggest tourist resorts in Ireland, and where you go if you want to get the gift of the gab by kissing the Blarney Stone. Now, Safe Haven is incredibly important, but it's also a massive opportunity to highlight, uh, showcase, or whatever you want to do, it's celebrate uh, Cork, uh, celebrate Ireland, and this conference will 
will give a lot of people an opportunity to come to Cork uh, who've never been to Cork before. So what's to be done? What is to be done? What way can this Safe Haven Conference organised... Oh, by the way, it's been led by... The organisation's been led by a woman called Sharon... Sharon... Oh, God, oh, God. Uh, Sharon... Anyway, Sharon O'Neill. Sharon O'Neill. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's my mentor. This is Radio Cork International, and this is your weather report from Cork on today, Sunday. There is a weather front extending from Glenmire to Blarney and from Mallow, I'd suggest to carry a line and this front is down for the day according to our reporters all over the county of Cork the weather today is and will remain drizzling so many employees in big companies need to make presentations to their own staff, um, their team, their customers. I mean, in some organizations, almost everybody has to do that. And people have to make presentations to volunteers. I mean, obviously, the CEOs and the directors of the company and then non-executive directors of the company need to be able to represent the company. They have to go on the radio, they have to go on TV, and they have to be interviewed, they have to speak to journalists after they launch their, after they reveal their annual report. And at the same time, as all these people have to make presentations a huge number of companies, in my experience, provide inadequate training. I'll put it that way. I mean, some provide no training at all. There are, of course, great exceptions, but too few companies provide adequate training for all of their staff who need to talk on behalf of the company or who need to talk internally on behalf of, in relation to policy or objectives or you know, the, the ability of the team to gel and work more effectively together. And there are innumerable situations where people have to make really short contributions at meetings. Even for sake of argument, a contribution of no more than one minute. And you know what, in all these uh, presentations and in all these contributions, people are scared. People have a fear of speaking up. People have a fear of speaking out. One of the most um, anxious moments for a chief executive is when they have to make a speech on behalf of the company. Similarly, directors. And it isn't, you know, it isn't only the senior people who are in this situation. It's 
Oh my goodness, it's uh, probably the only people who aren't scared of making speeches are politicians. They seem to, well, they do that for a living. Uh, and they get <laughs> innumerable practice on their way up to the top. So, uh, what are, what's an individual employee or an individual director even, or CEO, to do about this? I mean, it's very hard to provide CEOs with training. I mean, some of them, uh, you know, do get one-to-one -one coaching, mentoring, but, you know, senior managers in some companies, nobody invests that much in them. So they do their best. They do their best. And uh, their best may be good enough. I mean, they may be, from some other arena, able to speak in public uh, with confidence and effectively and... Uh, you know, they may be quite successful. I mean, they may actually have learned how to make speeches through their involvement in voluntary organizations and nothing to do with commerce. But, you know, I've been at a, at a meeting this morning which is within an organization which was set up specifically to help people on how to, overcome, how to get more confident and competent, confident and competent about speaking out. You know, public is just about anyone more than two people. And that organization has been around for a long time. It's all over the world. It's a voluntary organization. And a whole load of uh, companies in the United States, a whole load of Fortune 500 companies in the United States, have now got Toastmasters clubs within the organization. Now, this is a big thing. The, uh, the sponsorship by a company of a Toastmasters club certainly saves the company a load of money. But also there's incredible support and a tried way forward through, through uh, Toastmasters. So certainly with all the people that I was at this with this morning, they didn't start off good at public speaking.